He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. A little bit of Brad Paisley. He wrapped up the Canadian tour this week, by the way, if you didn't know. He's posting about it on uh, social media this weekend saying, hey, playing for God's frozen people. Now, I thought those were the Anglicans, but apparently it's Canadians. I, I, what did I know? Don't worry, Anglicans. I got that line from an Anglican. They're not God's chosen people. They're God's frozen people. It's okay. We're all good. It's been a while. Some things have happened. Some things have changed. And I'm not just talking about the solar eclipse. My eyes, the goggles do nothing. Did you watch the solar eclipse today? We're going to talk about that later on in the show. I got to tell you, I did not have the glasses, but I was able to watch through a camera in the back of the building. CTV news camera set up at the back of the building. I got to sit and watch the solar eclipse going on. But uh, of course, when I say a lot has happened, I'm not just talking about Steve Bannon uh, out at the White House, a guy that I've uh, said several times that I know that I've been on the radio with, someone that I have conversed with, someone that I spoke with to try and save Sun News. You know, sometimes um, divine providence just has a way of making sure that certain things happen and don't happen. And then we all make our own mistakes, our own decisions. We all decide that we're going to go a certain way. And I decided that I was going to leave the rebel last week. Now, for that, I have been told that I am abandoning the cause. I've been told that I am left wing, that I am just succumbing to the mainstream media, uh, that I am a cuck. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Uh, Not safe for work. Use the Urban Dictionary. But basically, it's a an insult thrown out by people that don't have anything else good to say. What happened? What happened was more than a week ago, there was the incident in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now, if you're one of the people that happen to think there were no racists in Charlottesville, that there were no white supremacists uh, in Charlottesville, then uh, give your head a shake and either get with reality Or stop listening to me, stop talking to me, stop following me, because uh, at that point, I'm not actually interested in talking to you. Because the Charlottesville statement put out by Richard Spencer, an avowed neo-Nazi, an avowed white supremacist, is quite clear. It calls for us to set up our nation states, to set up our political situations by race. Now, I, I don't know what the white race is because my people come from Scotland and Ireland primarily. Now, I've sent in the Ancestry DNA uh, test. I'll find out if there's anything more. Interesting enough, a uh, story out of uh, Global says white supremacists taking DNA tests sad to discover they're not 100% white. A new study by the University of California at Los Angeles found white supremacists have been using the genetic testing kits in an effort to prove they have so-called racial purity, but they're often disappointed to learn, in factually, they're not fully 
white, according to UCLA sociologist Aaron Panofsky and Jane uh, Joan Donovan. Those both sound like very white names, although from very different backgrounds, one Irish and one, mm, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess Polish. What does that, what do they have to do with each other? Well, they'd both be white, so I guess to the white supremacist, that means they're okay. But these two sociologists found white supremacists on the online forum Stormfront have been testing themselves using tools such as Ancestry.com and 23andMe, and that they are often sad to find out that they are not what they thought they were. Just that point, that the sociologists are Aaron Panofsky and Joan Donovan. Panofsky, Polish, Donovan, Irish. Um, Presumably, I mean, I'm just going by their last names, what do the Irish and the Poles have to do with each other? Irish people and Polish people are very different. The idea of a, we're going to be white, we're going to be white pride, I don't understand this and I never have. But if you read the Charlottesville statement, if you read what was actually in there, then you know that this was a white supremacist group. I have been told, no, Brian, you've got it wrong. It was just a bunch of paid actors to be neo-Nazis. Really? Richard Spencer is not a paid actor. If he is, well, he's got the role of his life, doesn't he? But he's pushing these ideas. He was in Charlottesville. He was part of Boston. He's part of all these other free speech events that are planned around the United States that have very little to do with free speech and everything to do with promoting an ideology that they're trying to graft onto the right, that they're trying to graft onto conservatism that has nothing to do with conservatism. I had a friend and colleague end up at one of these events making jokes about Roman salutes, which is another way of saying the Nazi salute, making jokes about Jews eating bacon if it's free at a neo-Nazi podcast event. She lost her job for that. And I can't say that that's a wrong outcome. We need to be able to practice good political hygiene in this country. I've talked about this before. I've talked about it myself. I've talked about it with John Robson. And for all of us that want to stand up and say that politicians have to be willing to call out Islamic terrorism for what it is, that we need to be able to call out Antifa or Antifa or whatever you want to call them for what they are, which is a bunch of violent commies, then we need to be able to call out Nazis that are trying to graft their way onto the system. Nazis and white supremacists and racists that are trying to use the goodwill that people have for conservative political movements, for conservative political ideologies, for them to try and work their way into the mainstream. I'm sorry. But I had family members fight against Nazis. I am not interested in hanging out, with, hanging out with people that worry about the dietary habits of Jews. Do they mix meat and dairy? That's up to them. 
That is up to them. And if they want to follow a completely kosher diet, that's fine. And if they don't want to, that's fine. That is up to them. I fully believe in calling out the alt-left. But looking at what happened in Charlottesville, and I was supposed to be off all last week and wasn't supposed to be in the news and I wasn't supposed to be talking and... Of course, things changed. But doing the whataboutism where you say, well, yeah, yeah I mean, but uh, you, yeah, I mean, those guys were bad, but what about Antifa? Antifa didn't drive a car into a crowd of people injuring 19 and killing a woman, did they? In an ISIS-style attack. When ISIS does that, what do we demand happen? We demand that our politicians stand up and call it what it is. Radical Islamic terrorism. That's what we want them to do. So what happened in Charlottesville? It was racism. It was white supremacism. It was neo-Nazis. They held torch rallies. They discussed how to divide America by race and how to deal with the, quote, the JQ. I didn't know what the JQ was when I heard about it. I had to look it up. It's the Jewish question, which is normally a comment that comes just before the FS. What's the FS? Well, that'd be the final solution, isn't it? Why are you talking about the Jewish question? Do you know what that makes you sound like when you talk about the Jewish question? So it's been a rough week for me. And no, nobody here at CFRA, nobody here at Bell Media told me I had to leave Rebel. Nobody told me I had to do a damn thing. I have enough good sense to say when people are talking about the JQ, when people are making jokes, you know, sympathetic jokes about Nazi salutes and about someone's kosher diet, and when there's praise being heaped upon documents that include dividing us up in this country, in this continent, by our ethnicity, that I don't want anything to do with that. And so I walked. Changes are being made at the organization that I walked away from. That's fine. They can do what they want. I'll keep doing what I've always done. I will keep doing what I have always done, speaking up for the truth, speaking up for conservative principles and ideals, speaking up for the ideas of smaller government, of free markets, all of that. That is what I plan on doing both here at CFRA and whatever else comes along. But just don't expect me to sit by while people run around playing footsies with folks that I don't want anything to do with. If you think that what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, that what happened in Boston, that what happened in Quebec City, this is all just plants. It's just George Soros doing everything. I've got news for you. We'll talk about Quebec City in a moment because it's interesting. I saw one newscaster, not on... Not on this station. Might be on the state broadcaster. 
completely dumbfounded because they were convinced when they saw the riots happening that it was all the the right wing. No, it was the violent left wing trying to stop the right wing from coming out. The far left and the far right coming together. I like to say, and I'm not saying that I don't know enough about Lemut to know, but I do know enough about what was going on in Charlottesville. I like to say when Nazis come to meet communists and they fight, you don't try and pick a winner. You hope that they both lose. So wherever that happens, that's what I hope for. Later on in the program, we will talk about what did happen in Quebec City. And I will denounce the far left that caused the violence. And I will call out media that decide to give Jaggi Singh a platform because he is a man that has been at the center of so many violent protests over the years and he gets a pass as a community organizer. I don't think so. Coming up next, we will talk about the five things you need to know about. John Robson will drop by to talk about conservatism in this country, what it means, where it will go from the 50,000-foot level. We're not going to talk about party and policy, but from the the high up level, what is it? What is it not? We'll check in with Pierre Polyev about his trip to Dieppe. He just got back today, a 75th anniversary trip to Dieppe with men that went to fight against, yes, Nazis. It was a pin trade. We'll talk about that and the solar eclipse plus Donald Trump and his statement at nine o'clock. We will take it live. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. If you're watching on Facebook Live, Join us for the rest of the show, CFRA.com or the iHeartRadio app, always free, Apple and Android. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Please. Brian Lilly's Five Things You Need to Know. All right. So we'll go back to yesterday for one of the stories that you need to know because I just want to make sure that you hear my view on it. And that is the uh, protest and counter protest in Quebec City. There was a group called Le Mute. They wanted to have a protest. At one point, they were holed up in an underground parking lot. That's where they were supposed to muster and rally, and then they were going to march, I believe it was, uh, past the Plains of Abraham and onto the National Assembly. That's the legislature in Quebec City. Don't pick on me for its name. That's what it's called in English, often referred to in shorthand as the Nat Ass. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, this group got together, and uh, Jocelyn Leger was one of the uh, the few people that would speak English to the media. It is a predominantly Francophone Quebec group, Lemut, which means the Wolf Pack. And um, they were there to protest the illegal immigration. Um, Jocelyn Leger was there to say that their group is not racist. We are not racist. We are just against Islam. I'm willing to cut her a slight bit of slack because English, obviously, not her first language. But that doesn't sound good, does it? Well, neither does Jaggi Sane, described earlier today as a community organizer on CTV News Channel. 
Um, he is a guy who's been at the forefront of so many violent protests that I can't even count. Can't even count them. But Jaggi Singh was saying that, well, Lamud's message, it needs to be confronted. Less than seven months after the Quebec City mosque massacre, when groups like Lamud encouraged a climate of fear and hatred towards Muslims, they're daring to take the streets to uh, create more fear against not just Muslims, but now against migrants. That's a message that needs to be confronted. Jaggi left-wing Singh. Let me remind you, Jaggi, that the young man at the center of that Quebec Moss City shooting liked more left-wing politicians on his Facebook page than right. Oh, he liked Donald Trump. That was on his Facebook page. Yeah, he also liked Jack Layton. He liked uh, the federal NDP. He liked the Bloc Québécois. He liked several left-wing politicians. He also liked Lacoste golf shirts. What are we going to blame it on? Jaggi Singh is a man at the center of political violence in Canada. He was at the center of political violence at the Quebec City riots where I was tear gassed. He was at the center of the violence yesterday. If we're going to call out the right for their violence, for their nasties, we have to be willing to call out the left. And when people like Jaggi Singh show up and advocate violence to get what they want, they need to be denounced. When they show up with communist flags, they need to be denounced. Story number two that you need to know about Ralph Goodale trying to close the uh, the barn gate after the horses have all left, showing up at the Lacole border crossing to say, hey, you know, coming into Canada, you know, illegally is not going to help. Trying to cross the border in an irregular fashion is not a free ticket to Canada. Uh, we have been making this point over and over and over again since last January and February when the, when the circumstances uh, began. Uh, we have Bull repeated crap. that message over and over again. When Bull you cross crap. the border at a point other than a port of entry uh, and cross in an irregular fashion that is not in compliance with, uh, with Canadian law, uh, then you will be apprehended mm-hmm. by the RCMP. Uh, yeah, well, Justin Trudeau not only tweeted out that these folks were welcome, but kept saying we've got the capacity to handle them and kept saying that anyone that opposed it is racist. So um, there's a problem here. Look, you can be opposed to illegal immigration and not be a racist. Anybody that knows me that could claim to call me racist doesn't actually know me. I don't care where you're from. You're crossing into the border illegally when we're talking about thousands of people at once within a month or the last couple months. That's wrong and it has to stop. Ralph Goodale just uh, selling the latest swill that Jerry Butts is trying to uh, fill him up with. Speaking of Jerry Butts, he is on the defensive after one of his good friends is making near double the official salary after he was appointed as consul general to San Francisco. Uh, That is right. Ranasar Carr was named the consul general to San Francisco as part of a round of diplomatic appointments the federal government announced on August 2nd. The official salary range... $119,600 to $140,700. The government won't say exactly what Mr. Sarkar is making, but just that Jerry Butts' good friend is making between $221,000 and $260,000. And he defends it by saying, well, these people took a substantial reduction in their income to serve their country. Story number four that you need to know about, Kathleen Wynne trying to buy more of your votes. That's right. After years of inaction... She is promising to build an access road into northern Ontario, the Reign of Fire. That's the chromite-rich area 
that could be a mining hotbed, but hasn't been because her government has not been interested in mining until now when they need votes. We're moving forward with our plan to unlock one of the biggest mineral development opportunities in almost a century. And the final story you need to know about local golf star Brooke Henderson says she's excited to compete in front of a hometown crowd at Sunday's CP Women's Open. Events now underway. I hope it's crazy. I hope everybody's out to support. And, you know, I love playing in front of big crowds, and especially when I'm playing well. So hopefully, you know, if I play really well leading up into the weekend, the crowds can continue to grow and I can hear those roars. Uh, the LP- This is an LPGA Tour event. Takes place at the Ottawa Hunt and Golf Club. Uh, if you didn't catch uh, Graham and Patricia live there today, I think they'll be out there again tomorrow. We're going to have all kinds of coverage throughout the Bell Media Empire here. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back with John Robson after this. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Conservatism in Canada, what does it mean? Well, if you talk to our detractors, it would mean close-minded. It would mean racist. It would mean bigoted. It would mean anti-woman. I can point out that the first Chinese-Canadian elected in Canada was a conservative, Douglas Young, out of Vancouver back in the 1930s, um, more than uh, 20 years before Pierre Trudeau brought in the Constitution and the Charter of Rights. John Diefenbaker brought in the Bill of Rights. Did you know there was a Bill of Rights? Yeah. Diefenbaker, long before that, he wanted to bring in a Bill of Rights, and he said, I am a Canadian, free to speak without fear, free to worship in my own way, free to stand for what I uh, think right, free to oppose what I believe wrong, or free to choose those who shall govern my country. This heritage of freedom I pledge to uphold for myself and all mankind. That was Diefenbaker in June of 1956, before he was even able to bring in the Bill of Rights. Uh, We've also could look to international thinkers like Russell Kirk, who lived in Michigan, not too far from Canada, talked about how uh, 10 points of conservatism. The conservative believes that there exists an enduring moral order. The conservative adheres to custom, convention, and continuity. Conservatives believe in what may be called the principle of prescription, and they're guided uh, guided by their principle of prudence. I want to bring in John Robson now, uh, National Post columnist, history professor, uh, longtime friend of this radio station and of mine, uh, to talk uh, from the high level, John, because you know since Charlottesville, there's been a lot of talk about what is and isn't right wing, and for me saying I won't stand with that, I've been told I'm going left. Um, to me, there's nothing right wing about a Nazi. Well, yeah, I think that that's just, to me a very safe starting point. I mean, Nazi does come from National Socialist, and normally, socialist and right wing are not thought to be particularly closely associated. Of course, in their cultural views, to some extent, I mean, the, the Nazis didn't like modern art and so on, but they believed in collectivism. They believed in subordinating the individual to a higher purpose that was itself driven by man, not by 
Russell Kirk's enduring moral order. And I think it is a great slander upon conservatism to suggest that the Nazis were conservative. It may be a convenient slander, but I think that, we, especially nowadays, we need to aspire to a slightly higher standard than convenience. I was going to say partisan, but I don't mean really in political parties so much in terms as in terms of philosophies, that we need to have a, get a discussion going here about first principles that is respectful, that deals in ideas and says, if you and I disagree about specific policy proposals, it's probably because we disagree about the principles that help us to understand how policy works. And we may indeed disagree about the nature of man. And we should be able to talk, precisely because these are such uh, important ideas, it's really important to keep a civil tongue while we try to sort through these very basic differences. Well, and I, I think you know, Russell and, and, Kirk, and, enduring moral order is the deepest of them all. And I just want to you know, bring that up, because you say we might disagree about um, uh, policy. It drives me nuts that because I disagree with someone on how to deal with an issue such as poverty, well, you don't care about the poor. No, no, I never said that. I, I disagree with how to deal with the issue, how to deal with the problem. Liberals and conservatives, the left and the right, it, it, it's not necessarily that they disagree that there is a problem, but it is how to deal with said problem, whether it be poverty, whether it be dealing with radical Islamic terrorism, whether it be dealing with thousands of people flooding over our borders uh, at illegal border crossings. Yeah, they, they disagree how to deal with it, but they also disagree with how to think about it. And one, I have repeatedly mentioned Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, in which he talks about this very deep, almost instinctive disposition on the part of some people to approach a problem in terms of methods that we've seen demonstrably working in the past versus those who really think that we need to come at it with good intentions. And that's why if conservatives frequently get called heartless, people say, oh, you don't care, because there are people who think that good intentions are the key to solving policy problems. And our, our side is too prone to call these people stupid because they don't pay enough attention in our view to methods. And so I think we, in some ways it's helpful to start by talking to somebody about the example I always give because it comes from the Cold War and it's no longer on the cutting edge of polemics, but People were disagreeing about how to deal with the threat of nuclear war in Soviet, the Soviet Union. And liberals had bumper stickers that said, visualize world peace, which is about intentions, about a state of heart, really. And conservatives had bumper stickers saying, peace through strength, which was a method. And so I go into these fast food restaurants increasingly. I mean, try not to go into them a lot, but where you have the touch screens to order. Oh, isn't this cool? It's modern technology. You're moving with the time. A&W yeah. has it. McDonald's has it. Metro is apparently moving towards automation. And it's a teenager without a job because the minimum wage has priced them out of the job market. And so you say, oh, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage. Oh, you don't care about the poor. And at some point you have to say, no, what, what I care about is the ability of a person to get a first job as a stepping stone to a career. But it's important on our side, I think, not to play to the stereotype. I always say if people think you're a clown, don't show up in a fright wig. It is important that people on the right not appear compact to be hard-hearted, not to lose their cool, get irritated and say, well, f you know, fine, okay, that's what you think of me. But it's also important for the people on the left not to be daffy about the fairly obvious consequences of well-meaning actions that they haven't thought through the incentives. And 
when I was in grad school, I would try to have civilized discussions with leftists, and I'd say, you give me one book you think is important, I'll give you one I think is important. We'll, we both read them, and then we'll talk. And I did this three or four times. I gave them a copy of Soul, and you know what? None of them ever read it. And yet they gave me books, which I did read, and so I learned something there. And they learned nothing. But I just think that it's true that conservatives believe in prudence, another of Russell Kirk's key terms. That is to say, do not try to remake the world because we are not uh, of sufficient moral or mental stature to do that. Stick with the tried and true. But in saying that, you have to realize that you're talking to somebody. Like George Bernard Shaw once said, we are made wise not by our knowledge of the past, but by our responsibility for the future. You're talking to somebody who doesn't think that way. And the first thing you need to do is say, before we start exchanging verbal blows, let me tell you, I know this will sound uncongenial to you, but this is how I approach these problems. I need to know what precedent you're setting. I need to know what fallible people will do. Love is a wonderful thing, but it's a finite resource. Don't try to build a society that requires asks too much of people because they will buckle under the strain. And that's not a negative thing about people, but it's a charitable view of their failings. To say, I understand that people have failings, and I try to create a situation in which they will not too often be asked to do more than they can for longer than they can. You know, I, I, I know some folks look at something like Russell Kirk's 10 conservative principles and say, oh, well, that's that's nice, but it's really airy-fairy and it doesn't make sense in today's world where we just need to be tough on crime and kick the bums off welfare and uh, close the borders and things like that. But if you if you have these core principles and use them as you approach each of these problems – it can make a difference because one of the things that Russell Kirk said as he was drafting up these 10 principles is he said conservatism does not have a central dogma that we can all go to. There's no das Kapital of conservatism. And, then, you know, some folks would point to Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Um, and I would say, A, that's wrong. And B, if you're going to do Wealth of Nations, you've also got to have, uh, oh, the second book just went out of my mind now. Theory of Moral Sentiments. Theory of Moral Sentiments. You've got to have both of them. And and unfortunately, folks only read Wealth of Nations and not Theory of Moral Sentiments. So, but there is no central conservative dogma. This is, I would say, as close as we come. Uh, it is an attempt to say, here's 10 very wide-ranging, vague things that if you apply them to whatever issue we're talking about will lead you in a good direction. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that people tend to dismiss theory as airy-fairy. And it reminds me, uh, there was a commentary uh, recently that I read about Lionel Trilling in the middle of the 20th century, a very influential cultural commentator and liberal, who said liberalism is the only philosophy today because conservatism has been reduced to a series of irritable mental gestures. And the writer said, well, that, that probably was, was true around 1950. But then, especially with William Buckley and National Review, conservatism seized the intellectual momentum and really be, the Republicans became the party of ideas. But we are in danger, we conservatives, of sliding back into a series of irritable mental gestures. We know the world has gone wrong. We are offended by a lot of things. But we cannot seem to articulate arguments that don't expose us to ridicule, and so we get well, grouchy or and, worse. And and too many people do get grouchy. So, John, let me ask you this, and we'll 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 wrap it on this point: is that I remember the the 
the saying that came out of the the Leadership Institute. I'd never been to the Leadership Institute, but I, I interviewed the the man behind it, and his saying is, "You've got to read to lead." And when I moved over theoretically and uh, politically from just accepting, without thinking about it, left wing political thought. I moved to the Soviet Socialist Republic of Quebec thinking that this was going to be uh, heaven on earth, and of course it wasn't. And then I started to think and I started to read. And the the saying out of the Leadership Institute is you've got to read to lead. And you've also got to have that intellectual backing of it, and I'm not sure that we have that anymore. Ten to 15 years ago, absolutely. Now I'm not sure. Yeah, and, and there are so many good books to read. I mean, if you, I was going to say, if you want a core conservative doctrine, try, you know, The Fall of Man. That, I think, is, is very close to what we believe, but not in a pessimistic, in a charitable way. Read Whitaker Chambers' autobiography, Witness. Um, there are so many books. Read Thomas Sowell. Uh, read Friedrich Hayek. It's not an easy read. Read um, Economics in One Lesson. So you're ready on the most obvious things to say, no, I'm not being uncompassionate. I'm pointing out that what you think is a kind policy will end up hurting a lot of people that I don't want to see hurt. But as you often heard me say, say it with a smile. If you're a conservative, you may be outnumbered, you may be under siege, but you also are actually right, and you have a message of hope. Look like it. Pope <laughs> Francis said, why do so many Christians look like they just bit a lemon? So, yeah, by all means, read and be ready to defend what you believe in, but be ready to defend it in a way that makes you sound like you're not bitter. And this is what is we, we have drifted in many ways. We're not going to get into polemically here. But yes, you must be able to defend intellectually positions that are unpopular. And when you are attacked and scorned and abused, you must reply with humility, with a pleasant manner, but firmly on the substance. And for too, far too often, we do the opposite. You know, we're harsh in, in tone, but absolutely wobbly on substance. And that gets you the worst of both worlds. All right, John. So let's not do that. I got to wrap it there and head to uh, a break. But I, I hope this is a conversation we can keep going on an infrequent basis. Sounds good to me. All right, John Robson, the hillbilly professor, as I like to call him, just because uh, that's what he is. Also, National Post columnist and uh, friend of this show and of my own. Uh, I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back at night for a few days. Back after this. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Oh, what's that nasty sound? Let me play that again. Oh, yeah. Those are fireworks being lit off by far-left protesters. They they were community organizers and counter-protesters to the far right in Quebec City. Uh, Shout out to Rob Lurie, and not just because Rob works for CTV, which he has for about 30 years. Um, I'm joking, Rob. You're not that old. Uh, But I I worked alongside Rob Lurie... um, when he was with, um, oh, what was it called? CFCF-TV is what they used to call it. Just like we used to call it CJOH downstairs. CFCF-TV in Montreal, the local Montreal affiliate. And I was a reporter for a radio station in Montreal. And Rob and I have been out at riots together. We've been to cover political figures together. And he was out there 
watching what was going on and reporting it accurately on CTV. The far-right protesters were not even out in the streets when the violence was happening. They couldn't get out because the left said, we're not letting them out. And they, they threw rocks, bottles, chairs, a burning dumpster. They literally sent a dumpster fire on wheels down to the cops to try and stop them from coming out. So the far-right protesters, Lemieux, could not get out. The far-left, led by Jaggy Singh, who gets a pass and is just called a community organizer, uh, they were the ones causing all the violence. That was yesterday in Quebec City. We need to practice good political hygiene. And if you show up with the Nazi flag, I'm sorry, you're out. I'm not standing anywhere near you. But for those of you on the left, if someone shows up with a communist flag, you should be willing to say, I'm sorry, you're out. If you show up with a black block flag, which they had yesterday in Quebec City, you should be willing to say the same thing. And funny enough, and I mentioned this to my sons yesterday, they were asking me questions about what was going on. There was a Mohawk warrior flag there. You know the Mohawks, they're not from Quebec City. You know who? which native group is from Quebec City? A small group of Hurons. Why are they in Quebec City? Uh, because the Mohawks, there was a massacre, and they fled there. You got to think about these things. You got to know your history, and you got to practice that good political hygiene. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Speaking of political hygiene, we'll speak to Pierre Poiliev about Dieppe, the 75th anniversary next. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580-CFRA. I remember as a young lad wondering where my uncle was. And uh, I was told he was gone to war. One of the men uh, remembering the 75th anniversary of Dieppe, of course, that was marked in Dieppe, France, this past weekend. Tomorrow morning at the National War Memorial, if you happen to be downtown, you can drop by and there will be a ceremony to mark the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Dieppe, the Dieppe Raid, at the National War Memorial. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be there. Uh, Veterans Affairs Minister Kent Hare will be there. A lot of veterans will be there. You know, please, here's my thing, folks, is that on days like this, set your partisanship aside. It's about the vets. It's not about whoever's in charge in those positions. It's about the vets. 913 men died in the Dieppe raid. More than 500 were injured and more than 1,900 were taken prisoner of war. It was often thought as, for the longest time, it was thought of as an attempt to test the German forces. That's what I was told as a kid, that it was an attempt to test the German forces and potentially lead to a, a full-on invasion. Well, it turns out that's not the case. Historians have uncovered documents that show that it was actually, it was a pinch raid. A pinch raid is where you're just going in to get something, and what we're told is that they were trying to get a, a piece of equipment. 
they were trying to get a new Enigma machine, which allowed them to break the German codes. So thousands of men took off from England, landed on the northern coast of France. Thousands ended up in POW camps until the end of the war, and hundreds were killed. Pierre Polyev was over there for the uh, the battle. And Pierre, I, I grew up hearing stories about Dieppe because one of the regiments that was a major part of this was the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. That wasn't my regiment growing up. I was in the the competitors crossed the hallway, the Argyles. Uh, we had a good fun back and forth with the Rileys, as we called them. But they were one of many regiments that uh, was uh, was honored this weekend while you were there with government officials and, and other veterans. Tell me what it was like going back for the 75th anniversary. It was very emotional, Brian. Uh, first of all, uh, think of the enormity of the event. It was the first uh, military action of its size that Canadian soldiers undertook in the Second World War. It was also the first time in Canadian history that air, sea, and land forces from Canada operated in concert in an aggressive military action. And then finally, it was the largest loss of life in the shortest period of time for for the Canadian forces in the Second World War, we uh, lost is e- over even faster than I think what the the Newfoundland regiment experienced. I think they lost seven hundred in one battle in the First World War, and this is nine hundred in a single battle. That's well, and it wasn't even a battle; it was a raid. So we're talking about six or seven hours. So if you can imagine, we were losing more than one man every minute for the the duration of the uh, exchange. Um, And going there in person, you can appreciate why. Um, Along the northeastern coast of France are these enormous cliffs. Uh, They look like they're maybe 300 meters high. And they're absolutely continuous, except for some small spots where they drop down. One of them is the town of Dieppe. Another is the town of Pourville. And a third is a town of they're all close together, and those are three of the five locations that Canadians landed to attack on August 19, 1942. But when you stand on the top of those cliffs and you look down, you're standing up there where the Germans were with heavy artillery and powerful machine guns. And you think of teenage boys traveling across the English Channel and getting off on this pebble beach and trying to negotiate a tank up these rocky beaches over sea walls and other obstacles while they're being fired upon from above. Some of them not in tanks, but on foot. And you realize they never had a chance. Um, And, um, you know, uh, we had with us four veterans who were actually there that day and shared their stories in person, recalled what it was like to be there. When we stood at the top of one of the cliffs, there's a Métis veteran from the South Saskatchewan Regiment, who's 97 now, but was only in his early 20s at the time. He said, the last time I was at the top of this cliff, I looked around me and all I saw were German soldiers. (laughs) I didn't know if they were going to kill me or lock me up. And now I look around and all I see is loving Canadians. I thought, what an incredible testament to what they accomplished. Uh, the South Saskatchewan Regiment took on Green Beach near Pourville, Vegreville, 
um, a bit further to the uh, the west, west of Dieppe, uh, along with the Cameron Highlanders of Canada, which is, of course, an Ottawa regiment that continues to this day. So they were, um, yeah, we, we were on uh, one, two, three, four, five, six different beaches uh, to try and go in and test the German forces. But also, as I said, uh, the theory now and this comes from a, a book out a couple of years ago by military historian David O'Keefe. I interviewed him at the time. He spent 15 years going through once classified documents, and it was supposed to be a pinch rate to try and get this machine that would allow the Allies to continue breaking the uh, the German uh, codes, which would allow them to not have so many people die. So it was a... Whatever the reason, it was a, a, a heroic effort. You were going into a, a situation of, of facing off against a, a well-fortified, well-entrenched opponent. And the look, I, I can't confirm the historicity of David O'Keefe's uh, um, recent book and, and documentary, although I have seen the documentary and begun the book. I, uh, but I'll tell you something, having been there, and having asked myself again and again, why on God's green earth would the political and military leadership have launched an operation like this? You know, the odds were almost impossible. You're fighting up a cliff. Um, you're fighting, you're outnumbered, you're outgunned, you're, around, you're, you're taking part in the most complicated of missions, an amphibious landing, um, and you're up against a very high, well-oiled machine that has just successfully rampaged through Poland, Belgium, France, and by the way, on the Eastern Front, is on its way to Moscow. And, and has uh, pushed out the British forces and Allied forces at Dunkirk. At Dunkirk. So, you know, over 300,000 members of the British Expeditionary Force had been driven out in, in an evacuation. Um, and and, and, and you have these 18-year-old boys from Canada who'd never fought in the live theater before, um, why would they? Why would the political and military leadership do something like that? Even if things had gone perfectly, uh, the the reward was on the surface very small. That's to me why David O'Keefe's um, theory and explanation might make some sense. Because yeah, and I can't I can't account for the veracity of it either. But it, my whole life, people have wondered why do this, as you say, and I haven't been there. I have to say, I'm speaking with Pierre Poiliev, uh, conservative MP for the riding of Carleton. I'm jealous, Pierre, because it's got to be something. My kids were just at the uh, two oldest were at the Vimy Ridge Memorial, saw all these battlefields. I, I'm jealous of all of you. Um, but it, it it had to be breathtaking and, and humbling at the same time. It was very emotional. And in fact, one moment was particularly touching. There was a hundred year old member of the Signals reg- Regiment who landed on Dieppe, but he couldn't get out of his, his landing craft because his electronic, his signaling system would get wet and be destroyed. And he wouldn't be able to do his job. He signaled over to the next beach where the Saskatchewan, uh, South Saskatchewan Regiment was fighting for its life and, and told them, boys, the mission is off. We're evacuating. And um, he walked up to a member of that regiment introduced himself right in front of me. And he said, I was the guy that sent the signal that your boys were to get out. And the South Saskatchewan member, Paul DeLorme, said, I want to shake your hand. Um, And he said, you know, we got through this, but 
so many of our friends didn't. And he said, we, and he looked, they looked each other in the eye and they said, we were just kids. And here are these two men, two men are, one is 100 years old. Wow. One is 97 years old. And it was just such an incredible moment, these two men. And you could see, the, it was the first time they had actually met in person. And, but after all these years, it was like they had known each other their entire lives. Wow, that is, uh, that is truly remarkable. Uh, Pierre, um, I, uh, I followed your trip on social media. Uh, it doesn't do it justice. And uh, were, were any of the, the local, were any of the vets that you spoke to local from, from Ottawa? There were not. There, were, um, there was one from Montreal, uh, one from Saskatchewan, uh, and uh, I think there were two from Calgary. And, in fact, okay. Calgary was very special because this time uh, the local Dieppe residents unveiled a beautiful monument to the King's Own Calgary Tank Regiment uh, right on the shores of Dieppe. Uh, and so beautiful regimental so, monument. Okay, just before I let you go, tell me about that. The, the, each regiment has its own monument? I believe they all have them now. Uh, I think there were five or six different regiments that participated but I know that I saw I saw about a, close to a half a dozen, and uh, the Fusilier de Montréal, the uh, the Calgary Tank Regiment, the South Saskatchewan Regiment had had one, um, and uh, we didn't get to every spot. But uh, there are special regimental monuments in those towns that are cared for by the War Graves uh, Commission of Canada, but respected and provided land for by the local people of Dieppe, who, by the way are extremely grateful. There were thousands of people in the streets wow. to, uh, cheering on our veterans, literally thousands. The mayor was there. The local member of the National Assembly of France was there. I mean, they rolled out the red carpet for our veterans. They were cheering in the streets. There were little girls giving flowers and flags to our veterans. It was just unbelievably emotional. All right. Thanks so much, Pierre. Um, you know what? I, I Maybe I should try and make it out to the National War Memorial tomorrow because I think some of these these well, veterans will be there. I recommend it. All right. All the best, Pierre. And to you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is uh, Beyond the News. Uh, we'll tell you about Donald Trump's announcement coming up. We're going to carry it live. We'll talk about the... Um, ongoing problems at the border, but I got a special guest coming up just after 8.30 to talk about the uh, the eclipse and what she saw during totality, a word we all know too well today. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Are you liking the new music? Yeah, this is, um, I think that was the the Breeders, Cannonball. I uh, had a whole bunch of new songs done up for the show. We're, you know, freshening things up, as they say. Coming up at 9 o'clock, we're going to talk about Donald Trump and his, well, we're going to take Donald Trump live. It'll be interesting to see if he can read the teleprompter. Um, if you hear people saying the president has no vision, it may not be a political slight. It may be that if you watched him check out the eclipse on TV, he took his glasses off and looked up at it without his glasses on. He and Melania were out on the the 
the the balcony at the White House with the glasses on, looking at the eclipse, and then suddenly, and then Barron comes out and he puts the glasses on, and they're looking up. Suddenly, Donald Trump takes his glasses off and is staring up, and I'm thinking, "What are you doing? Just stop that!" So, if somebody says the president has no vision, it may be a statement of fact and not about his politics. Uh, interesting story that broke just about an hour ago in the Globe and Mail. Governor General designate or the pick to be the next governor general, Julia Payette, is dropping her bid to keep her divorce files from public view. That's right. You might recall that there was a story back in July about how she had been arrested on a domestic assault charge, that it had been a tumultuous marriage and divorce. She sought to seal her court records relating to her divorce on July 18th. That's the same day that iPolitics broke the story that she'd been charged with domestic assault in Maryland back in 2011. But the the prosecutor had dismissed the charge two weeks later. My guess is something about that shows up in these divorce files. So Julie Payette had asked for them to be sealed the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, Post Media, iPolitics, and CTV all got together and said, no, hold on, this woman is being appointed to a very important position as the Queen's representative in Canada. Giving scrutiny to her background is important. The judge lifted the sealing order, but had some restrictions around what could be reported about her teenage son. The judge then stayed the order, while Payette was appealing. But today, she dropped the appeal. She said that she'd been fighting to protect her 14-year-old son. That's something we can all understand. She said divorces are about fractured relationships and often a sad parting of ways. This is particularly difficult when children are involved, thus the importance of protecting the ones we love and care about. My guess is there might be more things in there that will lead to questions about Julie Payette's, the vetting that she underwent. Let's put it that way. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Going to check in with an old friend who happened to be down at the totality. When it's a totality point for this amazing, amazing eclipse that we all witnessed earlier today. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Insurgent. Resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Yeah, screw Bonnie Tyler's total eclipse of a heart. I'm going with Hootie and the Blowfish for the eclipse tonight. Uh, If I had to pick someone to go watch the eclipse with, it might be Ricky Ratliff. She is our next guest. She's a former colleague of mine, longtime friend. And I got to say, Ricky, you've seen the highs and lows of politics, of the news media business on both sides of the border. You've worked in Canada. You've worked in the States. Have you seen anything as wonderful as what you saw today? Brian, this was the first time I shut up for at least two minutes in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> True I, fact. I, <laughs> I can talk, but I shut up. And you know what was great? And you, you talk about politics on both sides of the border. The, it literally felt like there was a pause in partisanship, a pause in politics, 
across the country, if anyone was looking at social media today, what you saw were hundreds and thousands of people and awe and wonder gazing up with goofy glasses on all at the same time. I mean, is there any other kind of great equalizer other than, you know, just a bunch of Americans and Canadians shutting up, smiling with goofy grins, wearing goofy glasses, and looking up at the celestial wonder together at the same time? It It was actually... It was an unforgettable moment, and I was surprised because tears literally just like bink, squeaked out of my eyeballs. I can paint the scene for you. I can shut up now, but well, and I'm let gonna, me know what you want to do. I, I, I like what you did there about it being a break in partisanship. The only political joke I've made about it today is that the next time someone tells you Donald Trump has no vision, they might be making a statement of fact because he took his glasses off and kept looking up at the sun. So we might yeah. find out when he goes to the teleprompter later today or tomorrow or something that, you know, he, he hurt his eyes. We'll find out. But tell people, so you're based in Washington, D.C. now, correct? That's right. Where, I'm in a swamp. I get mosquitoes every day. Where Ottawa and Washington, both built on swamps. What is it with capitals and swamps? Uh Tell us where you went to go see it, because you you didn't stick around in Washington. It was a trajectory that started in the American Northwest, and so probably the best spot to see it in Canada would have been uh, Victoria. And mm-hmm. But then it, it went from Oregon down uh, on a southwest trajectory towards South Carolina, and, and, and that was the line that was the best spot to see the total eclipse. Where did mm-hmm. you go? So I was just south of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I was in between Tennessee and North Carolina and found myself at a place called Fontana Dam. It was a beautiful scene because you've got the, you know, the Smoky Mountains to the north, and then you've got this forest that I can't pronounce in North Carolina to the south. And you're, but you've got the scene of this beautiful lake. Um, there were only, I'd say, about 150 people, but everyone was there for the same reason. Everyone was lovely. They were sharing of their goofy glasses. There was one high school teacher from Warrington, Virginia. He teaches astronomy, and he had a big solar um, glass thing that you could look through, a telescope sort of thing, and it had a sun filter on it, and people were able to gaze and, and talk about things and, and share, like, the experiences. But I went actually, when I actually went up to him after, I said, well, what did you think? You had your big fancy scope to look at it with. And he said, I was in awe. And I said, well, what are you going to tell your high school students? He's like, well, first I'm going to see if they can even still see, because high school students think they're too cool for school, and they said they could look <laughs> at it with their sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a conversation with that. You know, people in the building were saying, you don't really need the glasses. Uh, no, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You do. And I started to watch at about, oh, let's see, around 2 p.m. I think I was in, I was in the totality, so I saw it for about, Two minutes straight, and it was it was insane because you're hot. I was sweating; it was so hot, and I, the sun was so bright. And then around two twenty, you start to notice that mm, it looks a little different. The sun's still out, you know, to the naked eye, the sun looks out. But I would put my goofy glasses on, and I would start to see the the moon start to come into the frame and start to cover the sun. And you know, the closer and closer it got to that full totality the darker it started to get, and it was bizarre, and I started to get, like, I wouldn't say chilly, but definitely comfortable. I was no longer so sweating. So it, it cooled down. So there was oh. a physical, you could physically feel that it had cooled. It wasn't wasn't a mental thing. 
No, it was not mental. Like, I even asked the high school teacher I was talking to about, he was sweating like a pig, and I said, did you get a break from that sun for a few minutes? <laughs> he said, yes, I did, and he enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, it was it was just amazing transition of color going from um, hot blazing sun to what looked like a sunset. So when the moon had covered the sun, it, it wasn't pitch black, like, uh, around me, surrounding me, it looked like this, the be- a beautiful sunset. And the, when I looked around and I looked behind me, I was looking at lake and mountains and mouths agape and smiles, and it was extremely okay. surreal. How dark did it get? Because, uh, you know, I watched it go across the continent, but on TV, because we didn't have the full eclipse here. We did not have the totality. We had a, a partial, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but how dark did it get? Because on some of these live TV shots, it looked like well past dusk. Not middle of the night dark, but well past dusk. Twilight. It okay. looked like twilight. And it was like it was like that for two minutes. And, you know, it's like your internal clock didn't know what to do. Like, should I be sleepy right now? You know, what did raccoons start mating? <laughs> did what? Did raccoons start mating? You know, they're nocturnal animals. There were weird sounds that were happening, but mostly it was, this This is a cool part. I'll be serious with you for a second. It was light chatter up until the point of the totality, and then the totality happened, and you heard a collective gasp. And it was, it was really kind of eerie to hear, like, all, you know, 150 people that I was standing next to just sort of all at the same time, men, women, children, just go... <gasps> And you know, everyone, it, it everyone just went quiet for a moment. Everyone went quiet. Wow! And it was quite a it was quite a scene. It, it's incredible that you went quiet, but 150 people also went quiet <laughs> as something else. Speaking with Ricky yeah, Ratliff, I, she's a television producer extraordinaire. I've worked with on and off over the years. She's based out of Washington D.C. Watch the eclipse from near the Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee today, and it. Uh, it really seems like something. Now, you, you have, since you, you lived in Vermont for a little while, you're a bit of a, uh, you'd become a bit of a city girl, and then you moved to Vermont for a while and started taking mm-hmm. up h- hiking. Is that what yep. got you into saying, let's go check this out in the wild? It's just, Brian, these moments come, you know, once in a lifetime, literally sometimes, and well, I'm going to Working invite you. To, I'm inviting you to the next <laughs> one. But the last time it was like this around here was 1979, and all I cared about, Ricky, was that yeah. they pulled the blinds down in, in my elementary school, and I was in kindergarten or grade one, and they wouldn't let us out for recess. That's I all I, I knew negative. about it, and all I cared about. I was negative years old. Okay. Uh, in 1979, I was a twinkle in someone's eye. Yeah. But um, I think the full time, the last time a full solar eclipse went across the entire United States was 100 years ago. But, I mean, this was, I decided, you know, yeah, I, I fell in love with nature again in Vermont. And, I, and then it's just like, you know what, this stuff, just, it's so rare. And you, I just felt like I needed that perspective. And I feel like there were, I guess, lots of other people. On the drive from, I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, uh, for the night before, and the drive from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, to where I was in North Carolina, it was just amazing to watch all of these folks just parked on the side of the road, camping out. They had tents, they had umbrellas, they had cameras, they had sunburns, uh, they had <laughs> dogs and children, 
And I was just like, look at all of us, you know, somehow being able to squeak out of work, um, collectively deciding, you know what, this is worth it. All across America. Now, traffic has been terrible. Like, and I, you know, I'll probably regret or maybe second guess my decision to make the drive from Washington, D.C. to where I was for, you know, in this, this terrible eclipse traffic. But um, it, it, I wasn't the only one. There were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of other sun gazers along with me who just you, thought, you know what, I need this right now. Do you know when the next big eclipse is, Ricky? I can't know everything, Brian. I'm, okay. I'm still it, gathering myself from that it, moment. It is 2024. Okay. And one of the top spots to watch it will be Hamilton, Ontario, my hometown <laughs> and where you used to live. And I, I think I've known you long enough that I could say, yes. hey, Ricky, meet me in the hammer in 2024, or better yet, down at a winery in Niagara, and no, we can watch the a, eclipse. Let's go get a double-double. Double. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to go through. It's going to come up. Uh, this time, instead of coming from the northwest and headed to the southeast, it's going to come up uh, across uh, from the west side of Mexico, across Texas and up to the northeast. And it's going to cross right over the Hamilton Niagara area. And that's going to be apparently one of the prime spots for watching. Wow. What time of year again? Uh, April 2024. So not too cold okay, so down there. Okay, be, be too late to be a good omen for the Ticats is what you're saying. Yeah, well, they, they need something this year. They, they're they winless this year. The, oh, the Red Blacks have two wins, and uh, they're way ahead of them in the standings. That's how bad things are. Canada Canada is still going with Red Blacks as title for the, the team up there. Yeah, well, yeah, it's uh, you got to pick something bilingual when you're in the nation's capital. What can I say? Wee oui, wee. Oui. Oui, oui. Ricky, great talking as always. You are an honorary Canuck, and, uh, and yeah. you've always got a place in our hearts. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Brian. Take care. Ricky Ratliff joining us from somewhere between Tennessee and Washington, D.C. And but she told me off air she was stopped at a Chick-fil-A, the best chicken sandwich shop on the planet. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Donald Trump's coming up. Don't go away. official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Uh, I condemn in, in the strongest uh, possible terms uh, the uh, intolerant, uh, racist uh, uh, demonstrations or uh, vocal minorities that we've seen uh, crop up uh, uh, across uh, across our society. Uh, 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 that is Justin Trudeau uh, uh, talking about people protesting his, I'd like to call it an immigration policy, but it's not. He was speaking in Montreal just yesterday, and he was denouncing the protesters in Quebec who hadn't even marched yet. And all the violence was coming from the left, but he was denouncing the people who were saying, hey, your immigration policy sucks. A small minority, um, angry, frustrated group of racists uh, don't get to define who we are as a country, don't get to uh, tell others who we are. 
uh, and don't get to change the nature of uh, the open, uh, accepting values that make us who we are. Okay, but you get to decide who we are, and you've decided that what we're going to have is not an immigration policy built on the rule of law anymore, Mr. Trudeau, but an immigration policy built on your feelings? I'm trying to figure out what our immigration policy is based on anymore, because if you looked at the RCMP numbers the other day that were released, more than 7,000 people came across the Quebec border with the United States illegally just in the month of July. There were about 3,000 in June, and you know it has grown over the summer, as I and others predicted. We were, by the way, called racists for that. Um, so protesting your policy based off of feelings and not reality, we've got actual refugee camps in Canada now. We've got the Olympic Stadium, which I believe has reached capacity. We've got a former convent. We've got a former hospital in Montreal. Now they've set up, they set up one camp. The army set up one camp. Then they set up another camp. Then they set up a third down near uh, St. Bernard de la Colle, which is uh, near the Quebec-New York state border. Then they said, we're going to send them to Cornwall to the NAV Center, and they're setting up another uh, organized or another tent city there. By the way, the officials in Cornwall, they're rather upset because they haven't been told anything. But Ralph Goodale is now out trying to say, hey, uh, you know, you're you're not going to um, uh, this isn't a free ticket into Canada. Well, it kind of is. And immigration minister Ahmed Hussein is saying uh, they need to get help in order to up the number of cases being screened. And we're doing that by redeploying IRCC officials in other parts of Canada that can then come to uh, Montreal to help out in, in, in order to increase that capacity. That capacity right now is 95 cases a day. We're working towards 200 cases a day and the ultimate goal as needed is 500 cases a day to process that eligibility. 500 cases a day because that's how many people are coming across. 500 cases a day of illegal, illegal immigrants. I'm telling you, this will undermine support for legal immigration in this country if we're not careful. Legal immigration and a solid refugee system are important to Canada. But having an illegal system that runs parallel, where people can just walk across and declare their refugees and get into the system, that ain't right. Uh, just after 9 o'clock, we're going to get to Donald Trump. We don't know how long he's going to speak. CNN has a town hall with Paul Ryan scheduled for 9.30, but Trump could go longer. We'll see. We'll play it by ear, but we'll bring you the president's statements at 9. is live breaking news on News Talk 580 CFRA. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk 580 CFRA. We are awaiting the speech by President Donald Trump where he is expected to call for a troop increase in Afghanistan. That is the betting theory now. He is set to speak at Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall in Arlington, Virginia, at any moment. Now, this has been some time in the making. You might recall 
that during the election campaign, Donald Trump promised that he would get American troops out of Afghanistan. He did not, as his detractors claimed, call for an isolationist policy, but he did call for a less interventionist policy for the United States in the world. But with the Taliban spreading and ISIS spreading throughout Afghanistan, he has been under pressure from military leaders to say, we have to go back into Afghanistan, we have to re-engage. It will be interesting to see what he actually announces. We are going to take the speech live once the president starts, and we don't know how long he's going to speak. This is the thing with Donald Trump. So we will take his speech commercial-free in its entirety. If he is done early enough, then we will open up the phone lines. We will play clips. We will get your reaction to it. This is a major speech. It could have an impact on Canada and our military. Of course, we spent close to 14 years in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, we will. Uh, we could be asked to engage again. The troops at Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall in Arlington, Virginia, standing up for what would you would assume would be the introduction of the president of the United States. Donald Trump is now walking up to the podium now about to start speaking. Let's listen in. President's about to speak. Let's listen. Vice President Pence, Secretary of State Tillerson, members of the cabinet, General Dunford, Deputy Secretary Shannon and Colonel Duggan. Most especially, thank you to the men and women of Fort Myer and every member of the United States military at home and abroad. We send our thoughts and prayers to the families of our brave sailors who were injured and lost after a tragic collision at sea, as well as to those conducting the search and recovery efforts. I am here tonight to lay out our path forward in Afghanistan and South Asia. But before I provide the details of our new strategy, I want to say a few words to the service members here with us tonight, to those watching from their posts, and to all Americans listening at home. Since the founding of our republic, our country has produced a special class of heroes whose selflessness, courage, and resolve is unmatched in human history. American patriots from every generation have given their last breath on the battlefield for our nation and for our freedom. Through their lives, and though their lives, were cut short. In their deeds, they achieved total immortality. By following the heroic example of those who fought to preserve our republic, we can find the inspiration our country needs to unify, to heal, and to remain one nation under God. The men and women of our military operate as one team with one shared mission and one shared sense of purpose. 
They transcend every line of race, ethnicity, creed, and color to serve together and sacrifice together in absolutely perfect cohesion. That is because all service members are brothers and sisters. They're all part of the same family. It's called the American family. They take the same oath, fight for the same flag, and live according to the same law. They are bound together by common purpose, mutual trust, and selfless devotion to our nation and to each other. The soldier understands what we, as a nation, too often forget, that a wound inflicted upon a single member of our community is a wound inflicted upon us all. When one part of America hurts, we all hurt. And when one citizen suffers an injustice, we all suffer together. Loyalty to our nation demands loyalty to one another. Love for America requires love for all of its people. When we open our hearts to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice, no place for bigotry, and no tolerance for hate. The young men and women we send to fight our wars abroad deserve to return to a country that is not at war with itself at home. We cannot remain a force for peace in the world if we are not at peace with each other. As we send our bravest to defeat our enemies overseas, and we will always win, let us find the courage to heal our divisions within. Let us make a simple promise to the men and women we ask to fight in our name, that when they return home from battle, they will find a country that has renewed the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that unite us together as one. Thanks to the vigilance and skill of the American military and of our many allies throughout the world, horrors on the scale of September 11th, and nobody can ever forget that, have not been repeated on our shores. But we must acknowledge the reality I am here to talk about tonight, that nearly 16 years after September 11th attacks, after the extraordinary sacrifice of blood and treasure, the American people are weary of war without victory. Nowhere is this more evident than with the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, 17 years. I share the American people's frustration. I also share their frustration over a foreign policy that has spent too much time, energy, money, and most importantly, lives trying to rebuild countries in our own image instead of pursuing our security interests above all other considerations. That is why, shortly after my inauguration, I directed Secretary of Defense Mattis and my national security team 
to undertake a comprehensive review of all strategic options in Afghanistan and South Asia. My original instinct was to pull out, and historically, I like following my instincts. But all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. In other words, when you're President of the United States. So I studied Afghanistan in great detail and from every conceivable angle. After many meetings over many months, we held our final meeting last Friday at Camp David with my cabinet and generals to complete our strategy. I arrived at three fundamental conclusions about America's core interests in Afghanistan. First, our nation must seek an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the tremendous sacrifices that have been made, especially the sacrifices of lives. The men and women who serve our nation in combat deserve a plan for victory. They deserve the tools they need and the trust they have earned to fight and to win. Second, the consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. 9-11, the worst terrorist attack in our history, was planned and directed from Afghanistan because that country was ruled by a government that gave comfort and shelter to terrorists. A hasty withdrawal would create a vacuum that terrorists, including ISIS and Al-Qaeda, would instantly fill, just as happened before September 11th. And as we know, in 2011, America hastily and mistakenly withdrew from Iraq. As a result, our hard-won gains slipped back into the hands of terrorist enemies. Our soldiers watched as cities they had fought for and bled to liberate, and won were occupied by a terrorist group called ISIS. The vacuum we created by leaving too soon gave safe haven for ISIS to spread, to grow, recruit, and launch attacks. We cannot repeat in Afghanistan the mistake our leaders made in Iraq. Third and finally, I concluded that the security threats we face in Afghanistan and the broader region are immense. Today, 20 U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organizations are active in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the highest concentration in any region anywhere in the world. For its part, Pakistan often gives safe haven to agents of chaos, violence, and terror. The threat is worse because Pakistan and India are two nuclear-armed states whose tense relations threaten to spiral into conflict, and that could happen. No one denies that we have inherited a challenging and troubling situation in Afghanistan and South Asia, 
but we do not have the luxury of going back in time and making different or better decisions. When I became president, I was given a bad and very complex hand. But I fully knew what I was getting into. Big and intricate problems. But one way or another, these problems will be solved. I'm a problem solver. And in the end, we will win. We must address the reality of the world as it exists right now, the threats we face, and the confronting of all of the problems of today, and extremely predictable consequences of a hasty withdrawal. We need look no further than last week's vile, vicious attack in Barcelona to understand that terror groups will stop at nothing to commit the mass murder of innocent men, women, and children. You saw it for yourself. Horrible. As I outlined in my speech in Saudi Arabia three months ago, America and our partners are committed to stripping terrorists of their territory, cutting off their funding, and exposing the false allure of their evil ideology. Terrorists who slaughter innocent people will find no glory in this life or the next. They are nothing but thugs and criminals and predators and, that's right, losers. Working alongside our allies, we will break their will, dry up their recruitment, keep them from crossing our borders, and yes, we will defeat them and we will defeat them handily. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, America's interests are clear. We must stop the resurgence of safe havens that enable terrorists to threaten America. And we must prevent nuclear weapons and materials from coming into the hands of terrorists and being used against us or anywhere in the world, for that matter. But to prosecute this war, we will learn from history. As a result of our comprehensive review, American strategy in Afghanistan and South Asia will change dramatically in the following ways. A core pillar of our new strategy is a shift from a time-based approach to one based on conditions. I've said it many times how counterproductive it is for the United States to announce in advance the dates we intend to begin or end military options. We will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities. Conditions on the ground, not arbitrary timetables, will guide our strategy from now on. America's enemies must never know our plans or believe they can wait us out. I will not say when we are going to attack, but attack we will. Another fundamental pillar of our new strategy is the integration of all instruments of American power, diplomatic, economic, and military, toward a successful outcome. Someday, after an effective military effort, perhaps it will be possible to have a political settlement that includes elements of the Taliban in Afghanistan. But nobody knows if or when that will ever happen. 
America will continue its support for the Afghan government and the Afghan military as they confront the Taliban in the field. Ultimately, it is up to the people of Afghanistan to take ownership of their future, to govern their society, and to achieve an everlasting peace. We are a partner and a friend, but we will not dictate to the Afghan people how to live or how to govern their own complex society. We are not nation-building again. We are killing terrorists. The next pillar of our new strategy is to change the approach and how to deal with Pakistan. We can no longer be silent about Pakistan's safe havens for terrorist organizations, the Taliban, and other groups that pose a threat to the region and beyond. Pakistan has much to gain from partnering with our effort in Afghanistan. It has much to lose by continuing to harbor criminals and terrorists. In the past, Pakistan has been a valued partner. Our militaries have worked together against common enemies. The Pakistani people have suffered greatly from terrorism and extremism. We recognize those contributions and those sacrifices. But Pakistan has also sheltered the same organizations that try every single day to kill our people. We have been paying Pakistan billions and billions of dollars at the same time they are housing the very terrorists that we are fighting. But that will have to change, and that will change immediately. No partnership can survive a country's harboring of militants and terrorists who target U.S. service members and officials. It is time for Pakistan to demonstrate its commitment to civilization, order, and to peace. Another critical part of the South Asia strategy for America is to further develop its strategic partnership with India, the world's largest democracy and a key security and economic partner of the United States. We appreciate India's important contributions to stability in Afghanistan. But India makes billions of dollars in trade with the United States, and we want them to help us more with Afghanistan, especially in the area of economic assistance and development. We are committed to pursuing our shared objectives for peace and security in South Asia and the broader Indo-Pacific region. Finally, my administration will ensure that you, the brave defenders of the American people, will have the necessary tools and rules of engagement to make this strategy work and work effectively and work quickly. I have already lifted restrictions the previous administration placed on our warfighters that prevented the Secretary of Defense and our commanders in the field from fully and swiftly waging battle against the enemy. Micromanagement from Washington, D.C. does not win battles. They are one in the field, drawing upon the judgment and expertise of wartime commanders and frontline soldiers acting in real time with real authority and with a clear mission to defeat the enemy. That's why we will also expand authority 
for American armed forces to target the terrorist and criminal networks that sow violence and chaos throughout Afghanistan. These killers need to know they have nowhere to hide, that no place is beyond the reach of American might and American arms. Retribution will be fast and powerful as we lift restrictions and expand authorities in the field. We are already seeing dramatic results in the campaign to defeat ISIS, including the liberation of Mosul in Iraq. Since my inauguration, we have achieved record-breaking success in that regard. We will also maximize sanctions and other financial and law enforcement actions against these networks to eliminate their ability to export terror. When America commits its warriors to battle, we must ensure they have every weapon to apply swift, decisive, and overwhelming force our troops will fight to win. We will fight to win. From now on, victory will have a clear definition. Attacking our enemies, obliterating ISIS, crushing al-Qaeda, preventing the Taliban from taking over Afghanistan, and stopping mass terror attacks against America before they emerge. We will ask our NATO allies and global partners to support our new strategy with additional troop and funding increases in line with our own. We are confident they will. Since taking office, I have made clear that our allies and partners must contribute much more money to our collective defense, and they have done so. In this struggle, the heaviest burden will continue to be borne by the good people of Afghanistan and their courageous armed forces. As the Prime Minister of Afghanistan has promised, we are going to participate in economic development to help defray the cost of this war to us. Afghanistan is fighting to defend and secure their country against the same enemies who threaten us. The stronger the Afghan security forces become, the less we will have to do. Afghans will secure and build their own nation and define their own future. We want them to succeed. But we will no longer use American military might to construct democracies in faraway lands or try to rebuild other countries in our own image. Those days are now over. Instead, we will work with allies and partners to protect our shared interests. We are not asking others to change their way of life but to pursue common goals that allow our children to live better and safer lives. This principled realism will guide our decisions moving forward. Military power alone will not bring peace to Afghanistan or stop the terrorist threat arising in that country. But strategically applied force aims to create the conditions for a political process to achieve a lasting peace. America will work with the Afghan government as long as we see determination and progress. However, our commitment is not unlimited, and our support is not a blank check. The government of Afghanistan must carry their share of the military, political, and economic burden. 
The American people expect to see real reforms, real progress, and real results. Our patience is not unlimited. We will keep our eyes wide open. In abiding by the oath I took on January 20th, I will remain steadfast in protecting American lives and American interests. In this effort, we will make common cause with any nation that chooses to stand and fight alongside us against this global threat. Terrorists, take heed. America will never let up until you are dealt a lasting defeat. Under my administration, many billions of dollars more is being spent on our military. And this includes vast amounts being spent on our nuclear arsenal and missile defense. In every generation, we have faced down evil. And we have always prevailed. We prevailed because we know who we are and what we are fighting for. Not far from where we are gathered tonight, hundreds of thousands of America's greatest patriots lay in eternal rest at Arlington National Cemetery. There is more courage, sacrifice, and love in those hallowed grounds than in any other spot on the face of the earth. Many of those who have fought and died in Afghanistan enlisted in the months after September 11th, 2001. They volunteered for a simple reason. They loved America, and they were determined to protect her. Now we must secure the cause for which they gave their lives. We must unite to defend America from its enemies abroad. We must restore the bonds of loyalty among our citizens at home. And we must achieve an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the enormous price that so many have paid. Our actions, and in months to come, all of them will honor the sacrifice of every fallen hero every family who lost a loved one, and every wounded warrior who shed their blood in defense of our great nation. With our resolve, we will ensure that your service and that your families will bring about the defeat of our enemies and the arrival of peace. We will push onward to victory with power in our hearts, courage in our souls, and everlasting pride in each and every one of you. Thank you. May God bless our military, and may God bless the United States of America. Thank you very much. Thank you. There you have it, President Trump at Joint Base. You're listening to live breaking news on News Talk 580 CFRA. What a speech from President Donald Trump. He opened by paying tribute to the lost sailors who, um, the 10 lost sailors in that accident at the South China Sea, then a tribute to soldiers who fight regardless of race. A long lead up to his theory, his new plan of action on Afghanistan, but opened up by talking about how there's no room for bigotry when one opens their hearts.
He acknowledged that the United States is war- weary of war without victory, but then proceeded to say that a hasty retreat would lead to a predictable result, much like Iraq and the rise of ISIS. What I found incredibly interesting in this was it was not just focused on Afghanistan, but also on Pakistan, a neighboring country to Afghanistan that he says too often gives safe haven to terrorists. And he wants that to stop. He said that Pakistan has to change its ways. He said his strategy in Afghanistan and Pakistan is clear. Stop nuclear war. And they're not there to build nations. They are there to kill terrorists. We'll get into more of this after the news at the bottom of the hour. But um, Donald Trump acknowledging that he will further develop key partnerships with India, the largest democracy in the world, but also a key ally when it comes to Afghanistan and a neighboring country. Uh, He warned that Pakistan has much to lose if it doesn't work with the United States, but much to gain if it does. And here's an interesting point for Canada and Canadians. He did say he will ask allies for more. He didn't say what that more was, but did say he would no longer use American military might to build other countries in faraway lands in our image. We'll get to more of the speech. We'll bring you some clips when we come back from the news break at the bottom of the hour. And we'll get your reaction at 521-TALK, 521-8255. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. the news with brian Lilly. join the resistance on facebook and twitter at cfra ottawa five to one talk five to one eight two five five star 580 on bell mobility or 1-800-580-CFRA we carried donald trump's speech in the last half hour and i have to say i am beyond impressed this is a speech that took the best of trump's gut instincts which is to get out of afghanistan to stop the united states from nation building And combined it with the best advice he had from his generals, which included saying to him, "Uh, look, if you leave now, things are going to get bad. So Donald Trump laid out what they're there for and what they're not there for. And what they're not there for anymore is nation building. We are a partner and a friend, but we will not dictate to the Afghan people how to live or how to govern their own complex society. We are not nation-building again. We are killing terrorists. Bravo to that. One of the things he also said is that when it comes to fighting in Afghanistan, and the Americans are still there, we have, for the most part, pulled our troops home here in Canada. Donald Trump said that he's going to unshackle his troops in Afghanistan, much the way they have in Iraq. In Iraq, what they said was, you know what the laws are, you know what the rules are, you know what you need to do, 
do it. Don't keep coming to Washington. Micromanagement from Washington, D.C. does not win battles. They're one in the field, drawing upon the judgment and expertise of wartime commanders and frontline soldiers acting in real time with real authority and with a clear mission to defeat the enemy. What I found very interesting, and I'd love your thoughts at 521-TALK, 521-8255, was that this was supposed to be a speech about Afghanistan, but he took special aim at Pakistan. And the fact that Pakistan has for far too long been a safe haven. And he said, no more. I concluded that the security threats we face in Afghanistan and the broader region are immense. Today, 20 U.S. designated foreign terrorist organizations are active in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The highest concentration in any region anywhere in the world. For its part, Pakistan often gives safe haven to agents of chaos, violence, and terror. The threat is worse because Pakistan and India are two nuclear-armed states whose tense relations threaten to spiral into conflict, and that could happen. What he warned Pakistan is that they've got an awful lot to lose if they work against the United States. He said he's going to start working more closely with India, which, if you know that region, India and Pakistan do not get along. But he said, you know, it just doesn't make sense that they've been paying billions to Pakistan while they harbor terrorists. Pakistan has also sheltered the same organizations that try every single day to kill our people. We have been paying Pakistan billions and billions of dollars. At the same time, they are housing the very terrorists that we are fighting. But that will have to change, and that will change immediately. No partnership can survive a country's harboring of militants and terrorists who target U.S. service members and officials. It is time for Pakistan to demonstrate its commitment to civilization, order, and to peace. Do you have thoughts on President Trump's speech? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-CFRA. The email address, news at CFRA.com. Kelly in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Hello. Hello, Kelly. Yes, hi. Well, of course, you know, I am a Donald Trump fan. I wish our PM can speak with such eloquence. Did, did you listen to his speech tonight? Uh, part of it, because I was uh, listening to something else. But, what what uh, stood out for you? Well, because he has a position which people do not like. He is fighting what where we live in this world, which is with terrorism. In that country here, we uh, we are sleeping in the same bed with the devil. He is fighting the devil. And everything that meant he has such intelligence, even regardless of the, the mockery, of course, the media makes of him. You're the only one. See, very limited people I listen to have totally uh, uh, banned but, listening but, to l- Canadian l- media. Because I, I right just, now, uh, tell me what you think of Donald Trump's speech, not what you think of other hosts on this show, well, on this station. Well, I always 
regardless what I think of him, it is a man that stands for principles, regardless who likes it, who doesn't like it. But I mean, so I think, and I said this off the top, his gut instinct, and he campaigned, and you're going to hear the, the media come at him, you said you would leave Afghanistan, you would pull out right away, you would get out of there, and he's not. But he is saying he's listened to the generals, exactly. and they're going to do things differently. That That is interesting and impressive to me, Kelly, because to me that says he took his gut instinct, which was to not continue doing what they were doing, which did not work. That's not even gut instinct. If you keep doing something over and over, what do you call people who do the same thing over and over and get no result? Brainless people, stupidity, right? Eventually you got to say, hmm, this hasn't been working for 10 years or 20 years. Let's try something else. Let's listen, listen to the experts in the field who are at the forefront and say, wh- where is the problem? We have to tackle things for the reality of it and not the delusional thought. We're going to civilize people and make them civilized. They don't want to be civilized. They never will be civilized. This well, they, the they, don't, they don't spirit. want the democracy that we exactly. have. They have a different type of, of society. Well, and he says, let them, Brian, let them live how they want to live. Exactly. This is the same thing like in Lebanon. I'm Lebanese by culture. I'm Christian. Let's make this clear. When you go to Lebanon, you go from one side of Lebanon to the other side, you can tell where is the Christian side, where is the Muslim side. Because the thing is, people want to stay the way they are. You cannot take the horse to the uh, stream or water and force, make it, you know, force it to drink. This is how they are. This is their he, ideology. So, this is how their brain and, works. And, and this is what I like about what he said today is we're not exactly. going to try and force what we're doing. On other people, but we are going to look for results, which means no terrorism. I think that's a good thing, Kelly. What about you? It's a brilliant thing. I tell you, if I ever win the lottery, half is going to him, half is going to Israel. The other third, uh, I I mean, one third would go to him, Israel and animal rescue. All (laughs) right. Thanks for the call, Kelly. God bless. Let's go to Frank and Greeley quickly. Frank, you're on Beyond the News. Yes. Long time I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a great speech. I think so, too. Sounding more like a real president now. Now he's even a good example for Canada too. Like in the same kind of sense, like uh, well, he, he Trudeau, could yeah. he could he could be asking allies. He did mention asking allies for That's more. Right. So he's got a good plan. We we might be asked to send troops back into Afghanistan. No doubt about that. Like uh, no excellent speech. I never heard him talk any better than that. All right. No, as far as the eclipse was concerned, mm-hmm. there's not much of anything, really. No, like where I'm at uh, today, there was uh, not really any kind of dark periods at all. <laughs> that's that's because you didn't. We didn't have the full eclipse. No, now, no. Yeah, now I I did watch it through partial. Yeah, I watched it through a CTV camera in the back parking lot. Okay. And it was really cool. Now, if you just looked up, you wouldn't necessarily see it. And, of course, if you look directly into the sun, you could damage your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I didn't do that. I used to do that. You know, gosh, I remember the one in 79. Yeah? Yeah. All I remember is I was in kindergarten or grade one and okay, was upset was they, wouldn't, <laughs> they, they wouldn't let us out for uh, recess. I was about 19 years old at that time and uh, had welding glasses. And that- it's good to see it. That would work. Thanks for the call, Frank. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back after this.
This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. I don't remember the first time I heard about GNR. I guess it would have been, I think it was 88. I think it was when I came back from Scotland. I'd been out of the country for almost a month. Went on a big family trip to go visit my grandmother in Scotland. I got introduced to the Proclaimers before most people had heard them here, but I came back and I walk into Cheapiest Records at the corner of King and John in the Hammer and... All the people behind the record counter, this is when you bought records, LPs. Like you can do in Sunrise Records in the Rideau Center now. They're all wearing GNR shirts. And I'm like, what's this? Well, they're playing tonight at the uh, TD Place. And yes, Axl Rose showed up. He actually did. We're talking about Donald Trump tonight, though, and uh, and all things political. Uh, Mason in Greeley, you're on Beyond the News. Yes, hi. Good to hear from you. Thank you, Good Mason. To hear you. I wasn't sure what was going to happen after the whole rebel media fiasco. Well, I, I was just supposed to be off air last week, and uh, I was even going to be... I was be... wondering. You weren't on the air all week. Like, what's going on? Why? Is yeah, no, every, I was... time, every time there's some big news, there's no Brian Lilly. What's going on? I, I, I just wanted some... I was filling in for everybody else, Mason. I just yeah, wanted right. some downtime. I, I, I wanted to be on a canoe on a lake, and Ooh. I never got to it. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I fair love enough, canoeing enough. on a lake. Go on. Fair enough. About the Spear Kids. Yep. I I gave a hundred bucks. It's still going to go to them. Just because it, there was a deadline, right? Yep. I don't see why we can't make a new deadline. The elections, 2019. I'll give twenty five bucks a month from now until the election. Because the Spear Kids issue cannot end. It is the one issue that will destroy jihadi justice. Well, I, I don't want to use somebody's children as uh, a political it, tool. Sergeant Spear will not die in vain. I, 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 I hear you, uh, Mason, and um, I'm not no with... no reason why it could end. I, no I'm not... reason why it doesn't have to end until it's a million dollars. Why? 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 Uh, because that's the way Indiegogo works. Okay, well, find a new site. And and that's why. And well, you know, where we can raise money for them. Indiegogo. Find a new site. We can do it. We can raise a million dollars. Let's just do it. You can do it. Come on. I I thought about it. Um, Once my media interviews dried up outside, uh, so did the funding. So uh, shortly after I uh, appeared on CTV Morning Live with Ben Mulrooney, I think that was my last big interview. Or one of the last ones, um, just the funding, it, it didn't really go up by much after that. There was a, a bump from going on CTV Morning Live, just like there was a bump from any of the major interviews I did. But after that, it was it. And, it, you know, be a way. if the we other get a million dollars, like, why quit? Why quit? Well, well, we could do it. I'll give a, uh, me, I'm sure other people too, give a $25 a month until. Until it's a million. Like, All right. I, 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 won't, I won't say this just to get you off the air, Mason. Yeah. 
I will consider it, and if there's a way to figure okay, it out, I will. that's all I want to know. All that's right. All I, I want, want to go to Gloria and give Gloria the last word. Thanks for your call, Mason. Let's go to Gloria. Gloria, it's got to be short tonight. Sorry, last word to you. Okay. I, uh, I just want to say, now, this is about Trudeau and um, how he's uh, twisting words. And, and to me, he's nothing but a, but a U.N. puppet who, he's, like I say, he twists his words and with his hidden agenda to divi- in order to divide Canadians and silence our voices. This is what he's trying to do. Because no, in Canada, no, there's never been a Canadian, uh, Canadian uh, demonstration protesting legal immigration of Muslims or any other nationality that's being brought into Canada. And, and, and the, the protest that, that was shut down in Quebec City on Sunday... Oh, no, it went on. Yes, I, the yes, only, I the know. Only haphazardly, one that, haphazardly. But I the mean. only demonstration declared illegal in Quebec City, Gloria, mm-hmm. was the one from the far left, led by Jaggi Singh, who's led off as a community organizer. That yeah. was the one they declared illegal because they were shooting uh, fireworks and bottles and yes. rocks at cops. Yeah, no, no, these, these, uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, the, they had the the permit for it. But the thing was, it was only a protest against illegal immigrants. I know. I, the, I the hear you. Trudeau's allowing to walk uh, walk across our borders, and and the thing is, he's he has left. I mean, he's so incompetent and and. Uh, I mean, I have more words, but I, I'm, I'm stuttering on them. Uh, he's left our, our, our borders wide open by refusing to put border guards along it uh, and, and keep out these illegal in, immigrants. Well, and all, all he has to do is change the Safe Third Country Act, and he exactly. won't. He'd rather call you a bigot. Gloria, yeah. i, I got to leave it there. But we're back until uh, the end of Thursday night. Then I'm in for Rob Snow again. So you got a few days to call in. You're welcome to call back tomorrow or the other days. Thanks for the call. Okay, thanks. We leave you all with a little November rain from Guns N' Roses. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Remember, I'm on your side.